All right, this is an uh, interview with Keith Goldston, and take one, uh, segment one, take one. Hey, this is Christopher Chang, your host of Happy Hour Radio, and I'm uh, out and about in downtown Seattle, well, more of Ravenna, and this is part of our In the Vineyard series. I have the pleasure of attending a, a lunch for, uh, sponsored by the Wines of Portugal, and um, a great guy, a person I admire, a master sommelier, Keith Goldston, is here in Seattle. He is uh, based out of D.C. currently, and we're going to chat with him about his career, his, uh, his current uh, position, and the Wines of Portugal. So, uh, Keith Goldston, hey, welcome. Welcome to Happy Hour. Hey Chris, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to, you know, I love when our paths cross and awesome to be in your neck of the woods this time. Uh, I love it too and um, as, I, as I recall, if you remember, of course I can never forget, our last time I saw you was uh, October 2012 at the Aria Hotel, I think it was, right? And um, you were telling me about how I did for the advance <laughs> and as I recall, I was like, there's no way I started. And you said, uh, go put on a suit so we can give you your pin. Yeah, and I have to say the pin looks really good Thank on, you so on the jacket. Much. So. Yeah, it feels much better on my jacket. And, uh, you know, I spent four hours at the uh, blackjack table winning but drinking um, rusty nails. Four hours. I have to say that's a sign that Vegas is definitely improving because if you can actually order a rusty nail and they know what to do, hey man, it's either a sign of the apocalypse or things are getting a lot better. Things are getting a lot better. We have to thank Rob Bigelow for all their guidance as the <laughs> vice president of, of beverage over there. But um, welcome to Seattle. You are a master sommelier, but uh, let's talk about where did you grow up? How did you find yourself into this world of wine, spirits, etc.? Um, tell us about your story. Um, well, I, I guess it starts with the uh, being born and raised in Napa Valley. So, you know, in some ways people are like, oh my gosh, that's so fortuitous. I can't believe you grew up in Napa. Um, but, of course, there's a but. Uh, I grew up in a Mormon household. So um, I'm pretty sure I'm currently the only left-handed Jack Mormon master sommelier in the court. And um, grew up in a house without any wine. And my dad just thought Napa was a beautiful place to live. And he was actually a pipe fitter and decided to call that home because if he's going to deal with traffic in the Bay Area, I wanted to come home someplace beautiful. So like a lot of kids growing up, I really wanted a motorcycle. And, <laughs> and my parents were like, there's no chance for buying you a motorcycle. If you want one, you got to get a job. So I was 15, uh, looked in the local Napa paper. There were two jobs, no experience necessary. One was a cellar rat at Camus Vineyards, and the other was a busboy at a little Italian restaurant in Yonville. So I hopped on my scooter, drove up to Camus, and I parked, and I walked in, and I'll never forget, I walked into the room, and I see all these wine bottles and trophies, and I'm intimidated as all can be, because wine's kind of scary. But especially, yeah, it's like, this is evil and satanic all around me, and I don't even apply for the job. I just turn around, I hop on the scooter, drive right back down to the Italian restaurant and get a job as a busboy. And then a few months after that, I was able to parlay that into a job at to uh, Domaine Chandon. Mm. And this was late 80s, early 90s, and Philippe Chanty was the head chef. Um, Bob Hurley was the sous chef. Both of them have gone on to do pretty well. Um, the general manager was Daniel Shanks, who went on to be the usher at the White House. Uh, Richard Caggiano was our maitre d' who's now got a sausage empire which is just a fun thing to say sausage empire um, and I 
just got really lucky. Daniel was all about education and teaching, and I don't know how he pulled it off, but here I was at 16 years old, and I got to go to wine tastings. And we were, like, at Mondavi, and I remember, like, barrel tasting with Robert, and I'm like, this old guy's got some cool stories. Wow. And I feel so fortunate that I got to be part of that. Um, so it was for, I was there for two years. I learned a lot, started to get the bug, and started to get really excited about wine. And Daniel was, I mean, it was, think of like an old, like, uh, Merchant and Ivory film. Like, we'd sit there with the string and, like, lay out the glassware. Someone got sent home one night because the silverware was not at a perfect 90 degree. Right. Um, and I just really got exposed to fine dining and service. Um, but, like, a lot of kids growing up in Napa, it was like, get me out of this farm town as fast as I can go. So at 18, I moved to San Francisco. And, That's so far away. Yeah, exactly. Um, but because I had worked at Shandon, I was able to get a job at Moss's. And this was 90, and Moss's was like the French laundry of the day. And I was there for four years. We were sold out every night for the four years. People would call a year to the day to get the reservation. And the first sommelier that I got to work with was Mike Bonacorsi. So, yeah, and Mike um, went on to become a master psalm. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But he kept the education going, the teaching, and then I got to start learning about like Burgundy and Bordeaux and all these amazing wines of the world and spirits. I remember he like went on a crazy like two-month experiment of what is the perfect Negroni. <laughs> and every night it would be like, try this. And you're like, oh, that was pretty good. I thought last time was a little better. So it was just this great exposure to everything, and did that for four years, and then basically, like a lot of people in the Bay Area, I wanted to buy a house for what I was paying for rent, <laughs> and that really wasn't going to happen in the Bay Area. Was that possible back then? No, not really. Um, in hindsight, I probably should have made it happen, but um, my girlfriend at the time, we decided to move somewhere where we could buy, and she wanted to live somewhere that it didn't snow, and Las Vegas seemed a little bit more exciting than Phoenix. Oh, yeah, right. So I ended up in Las Vegas, and because I had done just four years of super ultra-fine dining, um, I had a job offer for Charlie Trotters that was at that time opening in Vegas, right. or Spago. So I, I opted to go Spago because I'm like, that seems more fun. I've just done really formal dining. Let's do rock and roll. Spago at Caesars? Yeah, Caesars yes, Palace. I remember. And, that long stairway, too. Oh, yeah. And we do like 1,200 covers a day. Yeah. And two years into that stint as a server, I was just that annoying server who kept going up to my manager like, I had this wine the other night. Why don't we have it on the list? And the manager who was overseeing the wine program went to open Spago Chicago. And Tom Kaplan, Wolfgang's partner, pulled me aside and he's like, Keith, you seem interested in wine. Why don't you help me out with the wine list? So part-time led to full-time. That was 1996. And I've been able to do wine full-time since then. And I was like 26 years old, and that gave me the keys to a multi-million dollar beverage program. Still don't really <laughs> believe that, but you know, I managed not to mess it up. Um, did Spago for four years total. And then um, Bellagio was opening, and Julian Serrano, who I worked with at Mosses, came down to open Picasso. He knew that I was doing wine, so then he brought me over to open Bellagio, and I was the wine director at Picasso for wow, a couple nice years. Wow, nice to have you on a first-name basis with some of these chefs that <laughs> Look back, oh yeah. Oh yeah, really, and I got some dirt there. Um, <laughs> or wolf, oh my gosh. No, just I know. kidding, Most but not kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and then uh, Bellagio for a couple years. And when did uh, Jason Smith get on with that team? And that was that uh, Rob Bigelow at the time too? Was no, this was that? actually pre-Rob. Oh wow. Yeah, because what happened is there's a couple of us who went there to open. I want to say it was '98, '99, and. Oh, yeah. And Rob was actually still up here at Canlis. Yes, he got his master's in 02. Yeah, and I passed in 01. And basically what happened is... Bellagio became like the Montreal Expos for Masters. It was like, that's where you go if you wanted to pass and really get into the system. Oh, right. So, I mean, during that time, it's crazy. I remember we did like a restaurant industry kind of like Thanksgiving, where I invite everyone over to the house like late night, like at 11 o'clock, and we do a traditional Thanksgiving dinner. And we took a photo one year, and there were 18 people in the photo. And at the time, there was only two Master Sommeliers in that photo. You go back and look at it now, it's 16. Was Angelo Tavernero down there? Yeah, Angela yeah. was there, and, you know, Geddes was there, Ron Mumford was there, Jay James, um, Robert Smith, myself. Um, it was just a crazy, magical, fun time, and we things like, you'd read about, like, a legendary wine, like 47 Cheval Blanc, then you could actually go in and sell it for, like, 15,000, 16,000 in the restaurant. Jeez, what a treat. What a serendipitous and fortuitous um alignment of stars and a path that from, from, from knowing nothing to becoming yeah. the pinnacle of our profession and uh, it, it's quite admirable and you, you've done a lot so being a master sommelier now for over 15 years um, what are the roles what are some of the responsibilities that you do as a master sommelier in terms of the court um, well it's kind of a good thing bad thing it's really whatever you want it to be and it's one of the most magical parts about being a master sommelier is, you know, I joke and laugh when I hear people like, oh, they don't want this person to pass. <laughs> it's like, we're a nonprofit organization. We have two employees. And the idea to be able to collude and, you know, it, back in the day, it was just pretty impressive to even just pull off an exam. It was like, oh my gosh, no one got hurt. All the limbs are still attached. So... I would say the kind of great unwritten role of being a master sommelier is a chance to teach and mentor others. And it's not a requirement, but it is by far the best part of it. And to anyone like questioning whether or not to go for their masters, I would say how much do you like sharing and helping others? Because if you like that, it is that's where I think it's the pinnacle. Right. You're kind of a lighthouse, a beacon of knowledge, and, and when you're doing that, I mean, ships are looking for you yeah. on their journey towards... Yeah. And also, too, it's such a personal journey for yourself, and it's so hard. It's kind of hard to actually enjoy it when you go through it. Because it is such, it, it's a lonely path. Yes, you can meet some great friends along the way, but as you know, when you sit down at that table, it's, it's just, just you. it's you by yourself. Yeah. So. Well, you and the three voices in yeah. your head telling yeah. you, it's Alvarino, no, yeah. it's Gruner. No, no, it's Fignier, no, no. <laughs> Um, so then now after passing and being able to like mentor others and take joy in them passing, it's awesome. You know, and, and whether it's doing something like today's luncheon where you just see people light up and enjoy wine on a very basic primal level to helping someone fix that like golf swing tweak in their tasting. Like, no, did you think about trying this way to figure out if it's Vignet versus Albarino? It's pretty awesome, and you know, like there was a stretch where I was living in Marin County, and I had 
have this house out in San Geronimo, which is out in the Redwoods and kind of really remote Marin. And I had just moved back to the Bay Area, and Jeff Kruth reached out to me because him and his study group, they had heard that... If you want to pass tasting, talk to Keith. It's like either go taste with Jay Fletcher or Keith, and they've got great things. So basically, we set up a tasting at my house every week, and it was every Thursday, and it was Chris Blanchard, Emily Wines, Jeff Kruth, and Kim Beto. <laughs> wow. And I'd give them each an hour. We'd do a solid flight for each of them. And we did it during winter. And this house, because it was in the Redwoods and it was north-facing slope, we called it Cold Mountain. And the room that we would taste in didn't really have insulation. And I'll never forget, there was like one day Jeff was waiting for Emily to finish. And he came in. He's like, holy shit, it is colder in this room than it is outside. And I'm like, you now have 24 minutes. Would you like to keep tasting? <laughs> I remember that walking into uh, one of the tasting rooms where the, the blind tasting was so, there's so much AC, it was like, wow. <laughs> it, but it's, it's such a realization because you realize you have to taste the wines in, in many different scenarios and circumstances. Um, speaking with Keith Golston, Master Sommier, uh, he passed in 2001. He's currently a Washington, D.C. resident. And when we come back from this break, we're going to chat about um, what he's doing now and also about this great luncheon we had at Solare in Ravenna here on Happy Hour. Radio.